Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And we have a guest today, Brian Rutherford, who is the co founder of Claudine Wines. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about the Negotiant wine model in California. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. Thank you very much. And Pierre, again, wonderful to be on here with you to talk a little bit about what I've learned in the wine business. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast about influencers and how people find out about great wine and talk to you a little bit about my personal journey. Maybe you could give us a little bit of your background, like how you got into wine, what were you doing before wine? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the Midwest and then joined the Army, did 15 years in the Army getting out last year, and then joined a consulting firm. And so I've been doing actually cybersecurity consulting. But about three or four years ago, decided that my wine taste had outstripped my wine budget, tried to figure out if there was a way to drink good wine for less. And that led us into this sort of negotiant model. And the us is you and... Yeah, my older brother, Lance, who actually lives in the Bay Area. So lucky I can get to come out here every few months and visit him and also stay. He's got a little place in Calistoga up in the north part of the valley. Nice. So do you want to give us a little bit of background on what Claudine Wines is and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So I think our journey started uh, about five or six years ago doing a micro crush thing. So there used to be a business called Crush Pad where you could buy a half a ton of grapes, and they would help you source a barrel. They'd help you make your wine decisions, develop a label. And then at the end of that, you got 25 cases of wine because there's about 25 12-bottle cases in a barrel. And so we did this. We called it Claudine. It was my grandmother who had long since passed away. But we found this cool signature that she'd put on a card to my grandfather who was in World War II. So there was this like army connection a little bit. And we presented that to my mom her mom, Claudine. And it was, that was going to be a one-time thing. You know, we, we made this barrel. It was way expensive. And it actually turned out the wine wasn't that good. Turns out, you know, sourcing grapes is hard and making wine decisions is challenging. And also, you just kind of got run through the system. There was a program. It was about 12 months. Okay, now you're done. You got your label. So we thought that would be it. No more. You know, we were in it for like $25 a bottle. And it just wasn't that great. I, I should step back. We've had several connections in the wine industry. Met several fascinating people, people who are in all parts of the business, but really been good friends with somebody who was a GM at a high-end winery at that time. And she offered us that next year we were talking about, this was fun, but we'll never do it again. She's like, well, actually, we have three barrels of our Cabernet that I could help you get that into a bottle. You could reuse your label. And their wine at that winery went for $185 a bottle. And we were like, oh, this is probably going to cost us like 50 grand to do these three. She's like, no, you know, we'll do it for roughly the equivalent of $15 a bottle. And we're like, well, wait a minute, like $15 a bottle for $185 cab. By the time we got a bottle label everything, we were in it for under $20 a bottle. And it was fantastic. That 2013 vintage of Diamond Mountain cab got 99 points at that winery. We handed that out like it was candy. We didn't know that it had that rating at that time. We were like, oh, this is great. This is our, you know, we're really actually proud of this wine which we didn't actually make. And so those friends who got those bottles were like, if you ever do this again, I want a case. Like, I'm in for two cases. Just go ahead and let's do it. And so the next year, she actually offered us nine barrels and we decided to actually make a business out of it. Wow. What are the different types of negotiant business models? Because sometimes I think people just buy fruit. Sometimes people buy bulk wine. You're talking about buying some level of bulk, I guess, from a barrel. Some people buy finished wine that might be in shiners in a bottle. Can you describe some of the different types and what 
it is Claudine is focused on. Yeah, well, you basically hit on the different ways where you can partner and, and where you want to be in the supply chain. Talking to people in the wine industry, it's funny over the years we've been here, people who are deeply into the growing or buying fruit and then making wine, they look at what we do and they're like, well, if I was starting, I would do exactly what you guys are doing because there's so much good wine out there. Napa has been planted, some say overplanted in the last 25 years. So there's just so much fantastic wine out there. Our thesis was let's go to the very end of the process. The wine is finished, it's made, we can de-risk it for ourselves, and we just make the deal right there. Generally, that's meant in the barrel. So wine is finished, it's already uh, aged, and it's ready to go. And so then we take possession at that point, get it to a bottling facility, bottle, label, cork capsule, the whole thing, and then over to our shipper. There's other places you can partner. You're absolutely right. If you want to have more of a hand in the winemaking, you can absolutely find grapes. But then you need a facility to do that, and the costs just go up kind of exponentially. You know, what we found is there's a lot of market inefficiencies here. I guess I should have said somewhere along the way that I'm an economist by trade, so undergraduate in economics and then MBA in finance and accounting. And so I'm intrigued by market inefficiencies. When there is a mismatch between supply and demand, there's probably an opportunity. And there's a few mismatches here. One of them is supply you decide on it, you make a supply decision usually three or four years before you know what the demand is for that current product. So that creates an inefficiency. Sometimes you have an oversupply. Sometimes you don't have the correct supply. If you remember back 20 years ago, Syrah was going to be the next great thing in Napa. Everybody's going to be drinking it. Let's plant Syrah. Yonier too. Yeah. It's still the next great thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, right. It is. And I love Syrah, right? But it's not been the mass market thing. So if you think about what wineries were doing at that time, if you just plant rootstock, it's going to be three to four years before you even get any grapes. And then three or four years after that, before you actually have something in bottle ready to sell. And then you realize the demand isn't there for that product. So there's a several places where we find those inefficiencies and we buy barrels. So we have a couple of interesting anecdotal stories about how wine comes to us. And, and two that come to mind are one, a Russian River Valley producer who bought some grapes from the Santa Rita Hills and made it into wine. So this is their first wine. This was going to go in their uh, portfolio in the 70 to $90 range. And then they made a business decision at time of bottling that said, you know what, we're going to focus in Russian River because that's just what our name cachet is, is here in Russian River. So they sold their entire lot, six barrels of Santa Rita Hills, first quality wine to us. And we bottled it under our own label. Another one that was interesting, a little bit of a sad story, but again, opportunity, 2017, the last time, well, one of the last times there were fires here in Napa, the winery tasting room burned down. And instead of rebuilding, that winery decided to sell off their assets, which in this case was their already barreled wine. So this was the finished wine that they just were not going to have a place to sell. And so we came across some Chardonnay and some Atlas Peak Cab that were fantastic. They had already received an insurance check and moved to Miami. And so we found a fantastic deal there. One was a little bit of a tragedy here in the Valley. Another is a business decision where something has changed. And then the third one is also just you know the yearly variation in yield. Right? So maybe not well known is that the same vineyard, the same acre can produce up to you know 40% more grapes one year over the next, right? Oh, it could be double. Yeah, it absolutely can. So, you know, 2019 was said to be kind of a light year, but then the three vintages before that were all very bountiful years. And so the demand for any one wine is relatively flat year over year. You're not going to see a 20% growth. I mean, maybe if something gets 100 points and there's a, you know, a spike in demand. But generally speaking, 
one, two, three percent growth is good. But if you have a 40%, you know, 40% more grapes and 40% more wine, then you need to do something with that bulk. So I have a question in the negotiant model. What are you allowed to state on the wine label in terms of like appellation source? Winemaker, I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Yeah. So basically, like, what are the guidelines of what are you allowed to put on the label? And is it a negotiation with the, where you're getting the wine from? Or is it there's like some boiler template? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's some things legally you have to put on the wine, like where it comes from, ABV and those sorts of things. For us, we want to be as specific as possible. So we would like to get to the AVA that it comes from. You know, if something comes, if it's Cabernet from Oakville, I want to be able to put Oakville Cab on there, right? I don't want to just put Napa Valley Cab because the more specific you can be, it's a more of an arbiter of quality. And then the rest is a negotiation. Most of the time, we've signed NDAs where we will not say anything. I've shared copy with winery owners before I published it to say, here's what we'd like to say. Hey, it's a rock star winemaker. These are vineyards you know and recognize, but we will not say if they do not want us to, like who the winemaker is and you know, other specific details that could be identifying. So like the vineyard name is often something that would give away too much of where the source came from. I think so, unless if it's a, a large vineyard where there's a lot of players there. And if I had, you know, fruit from Tokalon or, or something, I would absolutely want to put <laughs> that on there or say that. You know, I, I think later after we're done selling the wine, we do have a, like a past projects thing on our webpage. I'm a little more open about who we've worked for in the past. So I'm happy to say, hey, yeah, yeah, Philippe Melka has made wine that we have produced or Paul Hobbs has produced wine that we have produced. But I'm very careful because I wanna, I, I'm creating a lasting relationship. I don't want these things to be one-off. When somebody's got three to five barrels, I want them to call us. And if I've soured a relationship because they think that we've hurt their brand image in some way, shape or form or breached a trust, they're not going to do that. That's interesting. Do the contracts have a duration of non-disclosure? I think that they do. I just over-communicate. I think that that's who I am in general is over-communication. So I'll go back to them and say, hey, here's what I'm planning to do. Are you okay with that? And I think it's always been yes. Because I again, I want to preserve. It's not worth me to make a sale on a few cases of wine because I want to disclose everything about it. And then I don't get that fantastic source you know, next time. How would you differentiate private label versus negotiant? So in terms of you know, private labels are pretty known in terms of like a retailer or a restaurant, you know, making their own wine. And it seems like a similar model, but there's some differences. I was wondering if you could explain those. Yeah. So I think one of those differences is scale. So we've actually done a private label. An old professor of mine from, I was at MIT, uh, said, hey, I'd really like to do like 25 case. I'd like to see my own label on something. And so we produced that as essentially was a sub label under Claudine. And we made that and he was able to you know, give that to family and friends or do whatever he wanted with it. I think the private label, though, market, the way it's different is you're sourcing that for a very specific market. So for example, you might get from a distributor, hey, in the Southeast United States, what's really popular right now is a Merlot Cap Franc blend, let's just say. Can you go source a Merlot Cap Franc blend that will hit the shelf at $19? Because that's the price point that we've determined that we need. We'd also like that, you know, only available here. We'd like to do some marketing around exclusivity and like this is only available in this particular market. So on the back end, so when a distributor is asking for that sort of thing, then a private labeler would go source that somewhere on the bulk market. You know, I said scale too, right? So we're not talking what we do is 100 to 125 cases at a time. That might be 1,000 or 2,000 cases at a time. And they're going to go source that on the bulk market 
maybe produce a brand new label, you know, get a graphic design team. Hey, we want it to look in a certain way and then produce that. It's more market specific. You can also do it for companies. Hey, we want to do a corporate gifting or we want to do, you know, something that's co-branded. I think there was a Game of Thrones wine for a while out there. That would have been a private label project for a specific time in a specific market. It's just generally not meant to have the same vineyards every year, the same, you know, year over year, the things that you get at a winery. That's interesting. You know, when we think about the negotiant model, one of the most famous American negotiants is Cameron Hughes, right? I think his business originally was founded in 2001. So I think maybe that was timed a little with 9-11 and the recession. And a contraction in demand makes for opportunity for a negotiant and a bulk supplier. But when things got really good, he was overextended and you know ended up filing for bankruptcy in 2015 in a strong economy where the bulk wine market is weak because the regular wine market is strong. So can you talk to us about the sustainability of the negotiant model? Yeah, absolutely. So very familiar with Cameron Hughes, and I'm sure many of your listeners are as well. I was buying his stuff out of Costco in you know, 2011, 12, 13. Fantastic. Thought it was great value. It was there close by. Pretty impressed with it. And, and you know how you know he grew from not being totally unknown to being able to sell out everything by a New York Times article about, hey, this negotiant was out there buying bulk. I think what's challenging about it is you're right. This is a cyclical market. And I first thought that COVID would actually damage the wine market. And it really, in a lot of ways, hasn't because the high-end wine market is still there. What happened in 2008-9 is the high-end market, because that was a financial crisis, people who were buying $100 bottles were no longer buying that. And so that trickled down. So you had really good wine that couldn't be sold at for $100. So then the $50 wine couldn't be sold for $50. And everything just trickled down from there. Like you mentioned, as the market came back, there was more demand for that high-end stuff. And he was no longer to do the quality to price ratio sort of that he was looking for. I, I know he went international for a while, but that's a challenge to do that. I think sustainability, you know, we were chatting earlier about the overplanting or the abundant planting of wine in Napa Valley. Because if you can put Napa Valley on it, that will command a certain price. I think little known is that there's only a very, very small percentage of wine, even in California, that's actually grown here in Napa Valley. Most of it's Central Coast. You've driven down kind of the breadbasket of California and you see acres and acres of wine being grown. It's like 4%, I think. Exactly. It's mechanically harvested. It is, you know, yes, great growing conditions, but you're not getting that fine-tuned like sorting of the best grapes and using the high-end barrels and this and that. So I think that what is sustainable about the market is relationships. Every winery here in Napa, and of which there's over 800 bonded wineries, they all have a few extra barrels. What they don't have is hundreds of extra barrels. That is what like Cameron Hughes needed to continue that model. So our kind of our main difference is scale, right? We look for those three to five barrels that are of that top quality because I don't need to fill out an order that's a thousand cases that Costco needs to be able to distribute it. So I think that we get bigger by doing more projects, but not bigger projects. That three to five seems to be about the right place where you can still be a good arbiter of quality at that point. And I think that's interesting because part of sustainability as a brand is related to the sustainability of quality of your product or consistency, I should say, of quality of your product, right? And one of the issues is when that great bulk juice isn't available anymore, it's hard to maintain consistency of quality. I mean, 
at the very low end, you could say that's true for like two buck chuck, right? As variation and consistency from that and came out of a time when there was great bulk juice on the market and was able to do it. How do you think about that in terms of what's the consistency of the brand and of the product for Claudine's customers? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that we look for the best quality stuff that is a great value. We actually have this, like we call it the Costco test. If I can find something of equal quality at the same price at Costco, then I'm not interested in producing that, right? Because I'll tell you to go buy it at Costco. In fact, I wrote a blog that for a long time drove a lot of traffic to our site about why I buy wine at Costco and you should too. And this lived on the Claudine webpage. It was about buying, you know, inexpensive white wines and rosés, especially for the summer. Like, go there. Or even the local grocery store, when they're doing a case discount, go buy wine there. It doesn't make any sense for me to ship you a Sauvignon Blanc that costs $20 because one way or another, somebody's paying for shipping and to ship that across country is about 4 or $5 a bottle. But we're looking for those things that create a great value. The good thing about the Claudine model is we don't have to just be in Napa or Sonoma. We've been Santa Rita Hills, which is in Santa Barbara in Southern California. Haven't even scratched the surface in Oregon or Washington where there's also good quality wine. A project that we're actually working on now is bottled product from Santa Barbara from a well-known winemaker who has about 100 cases. And this is an aged Syrah. When he sent me a sample of it, I thought I was drinking $200 Cote Roti and it's 2008 Syrah that comes from the Stoltman Vineyard. So if you're familiar with Stoltman, it's one of the well-known vineyards you know, in the Southern part of California. And so I think that we can do that by saying we're finding the best stuff. So we're curating. We're curating great product. Why should you trust us? Well, we're kind of normal guys. Like Lance is a doctor, my brother, and I'm a you know, consultant, but I spend a lot of time out here in Napa Valley. And what we hear from our customers who are our longtime customers is they're less concerned with scores and more like, hey, everything I've ever had from these guys is good. We also guarantee if you buy something and you're like, this is terrible or this just isn't me, I'll buy it back from you. Totally fine with that. And so I think it's really building trust over time. You know, when we think about getting new customers, we do have to think a little bit about how do we de-risk it for them. So we are thinking about, uh, in our product description pages, say, hey, wines from this winery get 96 to 98 points. A recent vintage got this many points, or this exact wine got this score. We don't get them scored ourselves because it's kind of expensive to do that. And we feel it doesn't really add a whole lot for ourselves. So I have a question for you. So you mentioned you haven't really scratched the surface in Oregon or Washington State. But one of the things I think about those regions is that the price difference between the lowest and the most expensive grapes isn't as great as it is in California because of so much diversity. And so, you know, you have Napa and some of these like Tokalon vineyards that you're going for crazy prices. Then you have, you know, Central California. And so you have a really wide range. Does that let you kind of cherry pick the right opportunities or you just haven't dug into Washington State and Oregon yet? I guess I'm wondering, is there as many opportunities in those states? Yeah, I think you're right. There, there's probably fewer opportunities because there's just our tagline or one of the things we've kind of looked for is, hey, $150 Napa cab for 50 bucks. It gives people a quick like, okay, we're up here. We're thinking about $150 wine and I can actually have that same experience for you know, 60, 70% off. That's a harder story to tell when the wine at the winery goes for, you know, only 55 or $60. And we still, by the time we get into a bottle, hey, we have to sell that for 36, 37. And you have to build in trust there. So there are certain projects we just wouldn't do. We held off on doing Chardonnay for the longest time because we just couldn't find the right story to tell, the right quality and price. So it really had to kind of hit us over the head before we did a Chardonnay. Because I'd say if, if our Chardonnay was 
30 or $40. Well, there's actually a lot of really good shards for 30 or $40, but even at Costco, even at for sure at your local wine shop. So maybe go buy those there. But if you're looking for a high-end cab, come to us or really high-end Russian River Pinot. But pandemic changed that. We found some fantastic stuff that was you know meant for a restaurant. All the restaurants closed for a couple of months. And so we've got some fantastic Russian River Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and actually a small bit of Viognier that we found that did meet that threshold. And I'm curious in terms of just to hit on the point of you mentioned the, hey, this wine got that many points and things like that. And I know that that's probably under the NDA, depending on what you're allowed to say. But I'm curious on, are there any other differences between the wine at the winery and what you get? Is it just the label and the bottles different? Or are there sometimes difference in like, hey, this is a different selection of vines, or this is not an oak as long? How are those negotiations? Or is it the exact same wine? Yeah, so two points on that. It can be both, right? So best case scenario is that we get, I call it the last hundred cases off the line, right? So that they're bottling, we can actually jump onto a bottling line with the winery we can actually spread out costs that way as well. Mine just gets a blank cork or a Claudine branded cork and the Claudine label and theirs gets their own. That's one way and we've done that and that's super successful. And that's a very easy story to tell. That's, hey, this is the exact same way. Also, if it's already bottled, that's another way we can say, hey, for this Russian River project, this was going to go to the restaurants. The winery is kind of smart that they did sort of just-in-time labeling so that they could keep their options open which is a learning from the 2008 time period is if you can go ahead and bottle it and then label it later, then that's kind of smart. But sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it is, it's wine that didn't make it into a winery's, I'll call it Grand Vin, right? Their top wine or their thing. But why is that? It's not that it's necessarily bad. And this is another market inefficiency. Wineries are artists. They like to paint with all of the colors of the palette, right? So when they are picking in the fields, they might want a certain row or a certain plot actually split up into three different types of barrels. Maybe you do a French oak, an American oak, different toast level, because that's going to impart a different flavor profile. It's the same grapes. It's just treated a little bit differently. And then what they do is at the end, when they're doing their final blending, they take all of those different colors, I'll call them, and they're blending in to get the right flavor profile for what they're looking for in that year. What happens though, is there might be a few barrels of fantastic wine that just, they got enough of that flavor profile. And just like I was writing in an article the other day, just like Bob Ross wouldn't have taken his crimson red just because he had a little extra on the palate and put that across his landscape, a winemaker is not just going to say, well, we got these three extra barrels. Let's go ahead and dump that in here because it just happens to be sitting over there. Now, the accountants would absolutely love for them to do that because then they can sell a bit more wine. But winemakers tend to call the shots at that point. And then it's the accountant who's calling me and saying, hey, we've got three or four barrels of this really good stuff. Are you interested? Well, yeah, I think what most people don't understand, most consumers anyway, is that almost all wine is a blend because a barrel is like 25 cases approximately. If you're making a thousand cases, it's a bunch of different barrels blended together and they're blended in different ways. And then you end up with these other barrels that unless you have a really large cuvee that you're dumping the last things into and it won't really affect it, Everything is a blend. Even within a vineyard, a single vineyard is a blend of barrels from different vineyards because the barrels could be different coopers, different toast, different ages, and it makes a difference, right? You're kind of capturing the essence of a single barrel. Absolutely. Yeah, you see on the, on the back of bottles where you have 1% Petit Verdot. Well, what does 1% do? Well, a lot, actually, right? And so, yeah, that's where the inefficiency comes in and we're happy to take those. Sometimes we do our own blending. Great thing that we can do is take 
barrels from different vineyards from different wineries and actually make our own thing. And is that a scientific process? No, we get four or five people together in the kitchen of my brother's house in Calistoga. We do have several friends in the wine industry, many at different levels of you know, WSET certifications or SOMs. And we blend to find the right thing for us. You know, We have a, an understanding of what our clients like, but always asking ourselves, does the blend make it better or does it take something away? Right. Those are usually fun afternoons, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So the wine market in California has been a bit in oversupply mode. There was, as you talked about, lots of vineyards have been going in over the last 20 years. Huge crop in 2018, sort of average size crop 2019 has just led to a lot on the bulk market. At the same time, consumption has slowed down or growth in consumption has slowed down in the U.S. And so the, the growth in the wine market hasn't been as robust as it has been in the last 20 to 40 years since basically since the French paradox came out. What is the bulk market like today versus when you started back in 2013? Yeah, so I think that the bulk market is totally, it's bifurcated, right? So there's the high ends, really top quality juice. And then there's kind of the low end that I would call commodity type of thing. And the commodity is stuff that you're going to see, it'll hit the shelf for 15 to $20 or even less. And there's plenty market for that. So I think the growth that there has been in, in drinking is more the millennials. And there's plenty of businesses, the naked wines of the world, Wink, who will buy that sort of wine, will understand what your flavor profile is. Maybe they make recommendations. And plenty of people are happy doing that, which is, is fantastic. I think that on the upper end of the market, it's perhaps a little bit more competitive. I mean, Cameron Hughes is still doing what he's doing. He's actually built another brand called De Negose that is selling futures. So he'll tell you everything he can about the wine, and then he wants you to buy a case. And then when it's actually produced, he'll you know ship it off to you. But he's still looking for 500 case projects. I mean, that's a large lot of wine. I think for us, again, just being small allows us to be more nimble, allows us to go in places where they might have those three to five barrels left after the blending, or we just have the relationships where they're going to give us the last hundred cases because as nice as Napa is, and we all love this place and it's beautiful, but still need cash flow. That gleaming building does not pay for itself. And there's still this lag, you know, three or four years between when something is harvested and when something is sold. The fires and COVID together have kept a lot of tasting rooms very empty. So your walk-in clientele is tough to come by. I know this question was about the bulk market, but it all feeds into this supply and demand. Direct-to-consumer is something that the wine industry is just scratching the surface on. I mean, holistically, e-commerce, what have we been doing for maybe 20 years? And we're just now kind of figuring out how to curate products, stitch fixes, you know, four or five years old curating clothes. We didn't think we could buy clothes online, and now we do. So wine is still a challenge, and we're still just barely scratching the surface. But I think that is a trend that's absolutely here to stay, is direct-to-consumer. It's just how do you make these connections with your potential clients? You mentioned the fires. Fires have been raging for the last couple of weeks here in 2020, in the end of August, early September of 2020. There's the potential that there may be smoke taint issues with the harvest in 2020 because almost none of the fruit in Napa has been harvested. How do you think that would impact the bulk market? We went from this big oversupply of high-end grapes to potentially, would we get to balance or undersupply? It's a great question. Again, knowing that the Napa only supplies a very small percentage of the wine, then you know we're really talking about the high end of the market and the high end of the, the bulk market as well. But if we can go actually go back to 2017, the first time, well, the first last time, I don't know how to say that, 
that there were massive fires. And what happened in 2017 is fires all around, you know, came down from kind of Lake County, Calistoga, uh, where I currently am, it was evacuated. So smoke kind of filled the valley. The difference there between then and now is those fires were in October. And so by October, most everything is picked. Some high-end cab fruit that growers were trying to let get extra time on the vine to, to develop the sugar, to develop that really kind of Napa style. Some of that was definitely still on the vine. The problem is you don't know what was on the vine and what wasn't. So by the time that that stuff came to the bulk market, really last year, there was a huge question mark with it. And so, okay, I see 2017, this is 2017 Merlot. I'm kind of interested in that. Was it picked pre or post fires? Which is the question everybody asks. Well, there's no way to tell. And the incentive if you're selling that stuff is to say, oh, of course, I picked that before the fires, not tainted. Smoke is one of those things that it's really tough to tell when you're tasting out of the barrel. And it's something that may develop later. So you could end up bottling that. It tastes great now, fine. And then I start selling that to my customer and it develops smoke in the bottle, which is an off-putting flavor that doesn't just become a barbecue wine. It's like an off-putting flavor that basically renders it useless. There are some tests for it now, but it's a challenge to get it done and the lead time is really long. Yeah, ETS is backed up by a month. I heard a month, yeah. During harvest is almost like now impossible to figure out what to do. Well, I know people were doing micro fermentations, basically grabbing 40 pounds of grapes and trying to make like a a little mini fermentation to run quick tests to detect those flavors. Yes, they can taste it, but then they still have to send it to ETS to see if those phenols are in there. And if it's a month out, then it's like, uh, what do I do? Leave it hanging for another month? So I had tasted some wines that were a 2016 versus 2017, the same vineyard that was impacted by smoke taint. And it was super obvious. The winemaker made it just so they could learn. And there are ways to strip those things out, but you take away so much of what makes the wine special that he's just like, I'm just doing this for educational purposes, just so people know what a smoke tainted wine tastes like. That's exactly right. We did buy some 2017 juice, tested, everything was fine, but it impacted the price in our favor, right? So stuff that we would maybe pay $35, $40 a gallon for, we were getting for about half of that, which is fantastic. We made a couple of great blends out of it, but it definitely did impact the market. Fast forward now a couple of more years. Right now, the fires, as I'm looking outside, it's pretty clear here, a little bit of smoke up in the mountains, but everybody is going to hold stuff real close to the vests. Certainly their 19s, the 19 bulk, which is what we'd be looking for now here late in 2020, That stuff either just got more expensive or people are just holding on to it because they don't know what 2020 is going to do. Napa Valley Vendors Association, I think, called 2020 a complete loss last week. But I think it's too early to tell. There's not a lot of research on how long does smoke have to hang in the valley before the grapes pick it up. We do know a little bit of how to test for it, but it also comes across different. Is it something that can be blended out? If I just add enough non-smoke tainted wine, can I blend out the flavors? A winemaker doesn't want to be doing that, though. They want their pure thing and they're doing it. So too early to tell what it's going to do for the 2020 market. But again, good for Claudine. We can go somewhere else. If we can tell a good quality price story, we can help tell a story about a a vineyard, then we can go to maybe this is the perfect time to go to Oregon or Washington. It's interesting that the 2020 fires are making the bulk wine market of 2019 vintage more difficult for you. I didn't actually put that together until you said that. And that's really fascinating because I would have thought, I think of the vintage as one-off, but yeah, because of the aging time is so long at the winery. I'm curious if a winery has a bumper crop, at like say 2018, and they don't want to go to a negotiant model. And you know, Peter and I talk a lot about 
making the wine sometimes the easy part, selling it's the hard part, and they can't necessarily add additional wine to their supply and actually guarantee they're going to sell it. What are some other options besides a negotiate model for these wineries? That's a great question. They could just choose not to produce it to begin with, right? But the cost of production, I'll go into my, wear my econ hat for a second. The fixed costs of production are really actually pretty low, right? So once you've pulled the grapes off the vine, that extra barrel that it takes, you've already got the big stainless steel. So fermentation is going on in the big steel tank. So really your marginal cost of production is really, really small. It may just be that barrel and a little extra labor. So the incentive is just to go ahead and produce it because then it gives yourselves options in the future. You have a few options. You could lower your price, right? I mean, this is basic supply and demand. The thing that was $80 last year could lower it to 60 and probably sell some more. But wineries tend to not want to do that. They want to protect the price point year over year, which is different than France or other regions where the price does tend to fluctuate year over year, mainly because of negotiations, to be honest. But Napa doesn't do that. They would actually like to produce less, protect a a price point because there's some exclusivity to that. So yes, they could sell to places like us. They could sell to places like Last Bottle or Wine Still Sold Out, where it might not be their brand. You know, the worst thing that a winery can do is, is actually probably sell under their own label in one of those places. Because what happened, you know, after 2008, when the market crashed, is you have some wine club members who are still paying full rate for wines, and then they see it on one of these flash sale sites for 60 or 70% off. And then you get a phone call, hey, you can take me off your list. I just saw it over here. Problem is sometimes, you know, wineries lose the control once they sell it to a distributor. So it's not the winery selling it to Last Bottle, for example. It's the distributor who says, I've got all this extra wine. I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to sell it for pennies on the dollar out the back door. They try to control that now by putting price floors on things. Or if it's highly allocated stuff, hey, that distributor is not going to get their allocation this year because they did the wrong thing last year with it. It's a mismatch of incentives, but not a lot of great options. In France, you'll see wine getting poured out. You know, because I think champagne, you know, again, not a lot of champagne drinking and celebrations going on in 2020, bumper crop in champagne this year. And we're seeing that they're literally letting stuff stay on the vine or we'll dump wine later to protect a price point. So talking more specifically about Claudine, where are your customers based? What is your demographic? Can you just give us a little bit about your positioning and where they're at and who they are? So they're generally all over the country but probably most in California, mainly because we have wine events or we did pre-COVID two times a year, whatever our new releases were, things we were thinking about producing, had an event in San Francisco, invite all of the nearby customers so they could preview what we do. That's the only kind of in-person thing that we've ever been able to do because we are strictly direct to consumer. We also have a good presence in just other places that I and my military time have lived. So in the New York area, in Boston, for business school, Kansas City, where Lance and I are from originally and our parents still live, we have a good core there. But you know, the more that we've grown and the more that we tell our story in kind of a quality and price and value space, the more that our customers, I would say I know now one in 10 customers who actually, I know them personally, one in 10 customers who are buying our wine, which is a a fantastic place to be. So people are telling other people about it, or we're just starting to scratch the surface a little on Facebook and maybe a little bit on LinkedIn. Podcasts have been another great way that I can kind of tell our story. Our demographic tends to skew a little bit older, so not necessarily the millennial crowd. So the story we used to tell people, hey, if you drink $20 a bottle of wine, if you just spent a little bit more, you could have this fantastic experience. We found that that totally fell flat. What was more enticing is tell the people who are already spending $100 a bottle, say you can have that same experience for $50. And that is what really resonated. So we changed our kind of how we were talking about what we were doing to something that resonated. 
These are also people who buy cases at a time. We've built our model around the case purchase. Soon we're going to go to, hey, 10% off of a case and free shipping, but then everything below that doesn't get the discount and doesn't get free shipping. Because we found that, you know, we did this through customer interviews, right? Talking to people about how they purchase wine. What do they like about us? What would they like to see us do? It just narrowed our focus into like, let's focus on those core customers who are our best customers versus the, I'm going to buy two bottles every couple of years. I mean, we service those people just the same and they get the same level of customer service. They can absolutely send me an email or, or whatnot and I will personally respond. But we built our pricing model and everything around that case purchase. I'm curious, Brian, because we talked a little bit in the green room about being a pure direct-to-consumer business and learning from your customers' behaviors. I was wondering, what is that cycle like? How do you get the feedback loop from your customers and know what you should be buying for the future vintages and tailoring that to your customer base? Because I think, obviously, you said you bifurcate the customers that are buying cases at a time versus the ones that are buying less in terms of understanding their opinion. But what's that process look like? What's that cycle look like? How How do you iterate on that in terms of what you're offering? Yeah, first of all, just be data-driven. Why are they coming to us? I've spent a lot of time talking about how you should buy rosé at Costco or your local other place. We don't do a rosé because the quality and price just doesn't make sense to ship that either. So one is leading our customers in a certain direction that we're only going to look for stuff that provides a tremendous value. But we talk to them too, right? You know, Napa Cab will kind of always sort of sell itself, right? If it's good quality stuff. Same with Russian River Pinot, if you stay on the high end of Russian River Pinot Noir. But we used to say, you know, when we do a release of brand new Cab, hey, we want you to buy 12 bottles of Cab. That's actually a pretty big purchase. So we've allowed people then now to mix and match. As we've grown, we just have a few more different offerings. In my mind's eye, we would buy these 100 cases. We'd have 3,000 people on our email list and we'd send out an email and sell everything. And we actually may not even ever have anything on our website. Well, that's not the way actually things work. People want to buy, you know, try it and then maybe come back for the case purchase. I had a couple of customers who were really specific and said, hey, you're going to release four or five things this fall. Can I just get a bottle of each of those? Can you make a pack for me? And then I'll come back and buy a couple cases of the, the things that I want most. And I think that that brings up a point. Like We don't have a club. There are things about wine clubs that I didn't like. Some of it was the forced purchase. Some of it was the out of my six bottle wine club shipment. There were two things I really liked, two things that I was like, okay, that's pretty good. And then two that I thought were like fillers in that case. And that wasn't the case everywhere. But when I thought about developing our company, I never wanted to get to the point where like, oh, the May release is coming up. We better just go buy whatever it is that we can find out there because we have the shipment coming up. I understand why wineries do it. It's good cash flow. It's predictive what you can do. But it doesn't meet the needs that I think that our customers were looking for where, hey, we're only going to make wine when it absolutely makes sense, when the quality is there, when the price is there. That's the great thing about it being a little bit of a side business, uh, which has now grown more into a main business. But where if we needed to go silent for six months because we just couldn't find anything, we would do that. So on those lines, where do you think the best deals and the most exciting opportunities are for Claudine in the near future? I think it's deepening relationships here in Napa Valley for that good quality cab. Recently, I've been challenged to set our sights even higher, right? You know, you think that some of the greatest cult names that you can think of, stuff that's four, five, six hundred dollars a bottle, why not contact them? Their economics, while, you know, maybe they're protecting a price point even more than the person who's selling a bottle for $150, but it doesn't mean that they don't have extra wine. So why don't we build the relationship, go find out? I love using LinkedIn in my professional world to find out where I know somebody or, or do some research on somebody. I know enough people now in the valley where we should be doing the same thing. Hey, I'd really like 
an introduction to the winemaker or to the owner at Colgan or Bond or somewhere else that are like, you know, let's approach them. Let's talk. Let's hear what their pain points are. I'm hearing it plenty for the 5,000 case producers selling stuff for $150 a bottle. Well, let me try to understand somewhere else and see if there's another even greater value that we can find. Great. This has been super informative to an area I don't know a ton about in the wine market. So with every guest, we always ask them to give two parting pieces of wisdom. And for you, we'd love for you to focus in on the kind of negotiant bulk wine market. What do you think is a lasting trend that's going to stay for many years to come? And what do you think is a fizzling fad in this space? It's a great question. So I think a lasting trend is that there will always be a supply and demand mismatch. It doesn't matter the price point. It's because of these things that I talked about, this three to four year lag between a production decision and a selling decision. And add in changing out, ripping out cab to put Merlot, and you can add even more years to that. So I think that that will never go away. If I say that that is true, that might sound counterintuitive that this is also true, that going down market, I'm always going to go try to find the best possible deal, turn the screws on that winery who maybe you know had a mismatch in production, and that there always is going to be a greater deal to be had. I'm now of the mind that sustainable and regenerative is the way to go, is to create lasting relationships that when somebody has something that they call you versus, okay, I need to fulfill this you know, 800 case order. I'm going to go through my Rolodex and just ask what you got. I think that relationships matter in business and that is also true here in Napa. So fading fad is the always go to the lowest common denominator. I guess I'd be surprised in five to seven years if all the big flash sale sites are still here. Thank you very much, Brian. We really appreciate your time and and giving us so much insight on this space. Thanks, Robert and Peter. Great to have a conversation. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.